Well, it sure is a privilege to be sharing God's word with you all today, and uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity. We have been in this 2023 year journeying through Quest 52, where we're seeking to learn more about who Jesus really is and who we should be as a result. And so uh, today we're going to be in the book of Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, whether those are in print or digital form on your phone, I'd invite you to navigate to Mark chapter 9. And today, specifically, we're asking this question, is Jesus really divine? And so I want to begin with a little bit of word association. If you would, would you just turn to your neighbor and tell them the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word divine? Go ahead and share that with your neighbor. What comes to mind when you hear the word divine? Hear a little bit of laughter. That makes me curious. This is a bit scary, but I'm going to give you a glimpse into the way that my mind works. Um, Here are some things that come to mind for me when I hear the word divine. It's actually three things. It is a pope, a porterhouse, and a problem. All right. The first thing, a pope, not the pope, but a pope, Alexander Pope. He was an 18th century poet who penned these words, to err is human, to forgive Divine. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty natural. It comes pretty easy to mess things up. It's godly to forgive others when they do so. So uh, what comes to mind when I hear the word divine is a pope. Also a porterhouse. Who else is with me? That when you think of divine, lots of, I haven't even gotten into it, but that's great. Some of you are already with me. Yeah, a, a delicious 24-ounce porterhouse steak. New York strip on one side, filet on the other, so rare that it's still bleeding, but it has just stopped mooing. Anybody else? (laughs) Divine. Yes, that gets applause. That's a little disconcerting. Yeah. So I think a divine, I think of a good steak. And then I think of a problem. How many of you by show of hands have ever had a problem so significant that it was going to require divine intervention? Anyone experience one of those? Yeah, a few of us. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today as a people who often err because we're human, as people who settle for the simple things in life like a good steak, as people who often navigate the problems of of life, um, we know that we need a divine intervention. And uh, he actually has a name and his name is Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be exploring today, divine simply meaning of or belonging to God. Another way that we could rephrase this question, is Jesus really divine, is by simply asking, is Jesus really God? And you might think that's a simple question. And in fact, as I was preparing for this weekend's message, I, I found myself wondering, is anybody really asking this question? I think sometimes the church can be guilty of answering questions that no one is asking. And yet when I thought about this concept, I think there might be a couple of reasons why uh, people don't bother to ask this question. I I think the first is that many have already answered it, and for them, they don't recognize Jesus as God. It's, It's settled in their mind. And the truth is that people have a whole lot of ideas about who Jesus is and who he isn't. And that's nothing new. When Jesus was walking the earth, the same thing was happening. People had questions about who he was and who he wasn't. We read about that in Mark chapter 8. 
the chapter that precedes where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. But in verse 27 of that passage, we read this. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other prophets. In other words, people say a whole lot of things about you, Jesus. In verse 29, then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. That question was significant then, it's significant now. Who do you say Jesus is? And you might think it's a foregone conclusion that those who claim to follow Jesus would believe that he is God. However, we're in a culture now where a lot is up for discussion and debate. In fact, just this month, the uh, Arizona Christian University Cultural Research Center published the results of a study they did of a nationally representative sample of adults in America. And more specifically, they posed some statements to those who were self-professed born-again Christians, believers, and they asked them to either affirm these statements as what they believe to be true or uh, to affirm them as what they believe to be untrue. And one of those statements was this, of born-again Christians in America, the statement was, Jesus did not commit sins during his time on earth. And of born-again Christians in America, 44% agreed with this statement. That is to say that present in our culture, those who confess to be born-again believers, over half believe that Jesus sinned during his time on earth. And so I think it's important to ask this question and to consider what Scripture has to say about who Jesus really is. Is Jesus really divine? Well, I think if we double-click into that question, we can ask a few more. The first is, what did Jesus say about himself? Perhaps that was a long time ago, and and this this giant game of telephone, and over time, things have been embellished or misconstrued, and maybe Jesus did never claim to be God, and yet what we see very clearly in Scripture, in one place among many, John chapter 10, Jesus simply said, the Father and I are one. I love how the message translation puts this. Jesus saying, I and the Father are one heart and mind. This is just one example of many in Scripture in which Jesus taught and claimed uh, to be God. And if we look at the testimony of the early church, what they believed and what they taught as they began this thing we're now a part of, capital C Church, the Apostle Paul was crystal clear on his teaching about the divinity of Jesus in the book of Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 19, where we read, Paul write, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. In other words, Jesus claimed to be divine. His followers, the earliest believers, those who began this movement called the Christian church, believed him to be divine. So who do you say Jesus is? There's a theological 
concept called the trilemma, a dilemma or a dilemma being a challenge between opposing views or, or opposing circumstances, and you have to make a choice, you have a dilemma. A trilemma is three options that you must wrestle with, and the uh, Christian author and apologist C.S. Lewis made this concept famous in his book Mere Christianity, where he talked about Jesus as either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And I'd like to read a passage of C.S. Lewis' words from Mere Christianity, in which he writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Who do you say Jesus is? I think another reason why we may not be preoccupied or even asking the question, is Jesus really divine, is that Jesus' divinity only matters when we recognize our depravity. And let me word that differently. His holiness becomes most evident in our brokenness. We don't need to know the holy nature of Jesus until we come face to face with the brokenness of human nature. When we find ourselves in a situation that requires divine intervention. You know, um, our family, my family, had a really rough weekend last weekend. And... um, I'll spare you the details because they're not necessary, but what I will say is that events occurred last weekend that left us confused and sad and hurt and angry and broken and hurting as a family. And I'll be honest, there was a real temptation to avoid walking into this room last weekend. Sometimes pain causes you to want to avoid people. And by, yet by the grace of God, we, we did walk into this room and as a family, we sat together and we worshiped and we were ministered by God through the words of my good friend Jacob Bales when he reminded us that when we're hurting, when we're in pain, when we have a need, that need is not met by something, but by someone. And his name is Jesus. And so I just want to pause for a moment and acknowledge the fact that, like me and my family last weekend, you may have walked through these doors with some pain. You may be broken. 
In fact, you may have been within a breath of not showing up at all. And just let me say, you made the right choice. This is exactly where you belong. And I'll go so far as to say that that if you're here today and you're facing something, a, a problem, an issue, a pain, in which you recognize no earthly solution is going to bring you peace, you need a divine intervention, my guess is you, perhaps more than any other, is going to get the most out of this message today. And I hope that you find Jesus to be what you need to meet whatever it is that you're facing. And yet what I also know to be true is that there is a pretty significant gap between knowledge and experience. That there is a significant distance between believing in the the divinity and in the powerful presence of Jesus and actually beholding it for yourself. And what we're going to see in our text today in Mark chapter 9 is a a group of men who went from uh, knowledge to experience. And so in verse 2 of Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to pick up. And we read beginning in that verse that six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. First of all, would you just raise your hand if you would be interested in a personal invitation from Jesus to have a mountain, literal mountaintop experience with a few close friends. Anybody else? Sign me up for that. Absolutely. I'm not even a big outdoorsman, but I know a good ask and a good hang when I see one. And so this incredible opportunity, but this verse also says six days later. Six days later than what? Well, this is six days later than, than, uh, from Peter's declaration of who Jesus is. Six days after Peter saying, you know what, Jesus, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas and say a lot of different things about you, but I know who you are. You are the Messiah. And so six days later, Jesus extends an invitation to Peter and James and John to have this mountaintop experience uh, with him. And picking back up in verse 2, here's what that experience entails. As the men watched... Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Okay, I don't know what Peter, James, and John expected this mountaintop experience to look like, but this was not it. They did not see this coming. I think there's some parallels between their experience and and ours. Very simply in this statement that following Jesus will often not be what you expect it to be. And if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you probably have a story or two in which God called you, Jesus invited you to follow him, And you were heading up the mountain and thinking you were going to roast marshmallows and sing kumbaya and tell scary stories. And this was going to be amazing because I'm following Jesus and God is good and everything's going to be great. And then you got to wherever he was leading you and things did not go the way you expected them to go. Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah. That's normative. When we say yes to the call of God on our lives, when we follow Jesus wherever he leads us, it's probably going to turn out a little differently than we expect it to. 
And this transfiguration of Jesus, the change in his appearance and the the showing up of Moses and Elijah closed the gap very quickly for Peter, James, and John between their knowledge of Jesus and their experience of Jesus. It's one thing to say you are the Messiah. It's another to see him transformed in your very presence. Verse 5, Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, It's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, verse 6, he said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. (laughs) I love that so much. Um, Another good takeaway for us, when we come face to face, with the divine presence and power of Jesus, it is equal parts, wonderful and terrifying. You know, I don't think that Peter was lying when he spoke to Jesus and said, this is wonderful. I think he was amazed. I think he could hardly believe his eyes. This was an incredibly wonderful moment. And at the same time, the writer tells us that he and James and John were terrified. It reminds me of the first time I took my middle daughter, Emma, to Cedar Point, the amusement park in Sandusky, Ohio, roller coaster capital of the world, or so they claim. And on this particular occasion, Emma got up the nerve to ride the Millennium Force for the first time. The Millennium Force being a roller coaster that rises 310 feet It goes 93 miles per hour, and it is two minutes long. Anybody think that sounds amazing? We got lots of nope shakes. Well, Emma mustered up the courage to go with dad and sister on that ride, uh, white-knuckled it through the full two minutes, and I'll remember distinctly when we got off the ride that day, I said, Emma, what'd you think? Did you have fun? And she said, yeah, that was amazing. And then I said, you want to do it again? And she said, no, thank you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. If that's not a picture of the Christian faith, I don't know what it is. What, what is. I, if that's not a picture of what it means to follow Jesus up onto the mountain and have an incredible experience of some kind with him and then come down off and say, that was amazing. God, please don't ever ask me to do that again. <laughs> That's what it means to follow Jesus and to say yes to go where he calls you to go. Full disclosure, I've shared this before. Right now, in this very moment, answering the call of God to stand in front of a couple thousand people and share his word, it's a wonderful privilege. And boy, is it terrifying. (laughs) When you say yes to God, when you choose to follow Jesus, He's going to lead you into some places. He's going to walk you up some mountains in which you're going to experience him in an incredible, miraculous, wonderful way. And it will be terrifying. There's another natural response uh, that, that Peter makes here that we often make as well when we, especially I've observed when we first come to faith in Jesus and we come to know the truth of who he is and what he's done for us, that oftentimes we will busy ourselves with activity. 
And here's Peter, this amazing moment. He doesn't really know what to do. He really doesn't know what to say. And so he says, hey, Jesus, I got a great idea. Let's make a shelter, one for you and Moses and Elijah. And he's got plans and he's ready to get busy and do something because he doesn't know what to do. And that can be our reality sometimes as well. I've been in ministry for 17 years. And unfortunately, I've seen on more than one occasion someone to come to faith in Jesus and immediately begin busying themselves with activities within the church. And they sign up for things, and they serve, and they go to events, and and their calendar fills up quickly. And yet for some, it's only a matter of months before they're gone altogether. They have replaced the priority of being in the presence of Jesus with activity. And Peter falls into the same trap. And so he needs a course correction. He needs in this moment a divine intervention. And boy, does he get one, beginning in verse 7. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the clouds said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. You talk about wonderful and terrifying. A a voice from the heavens, God the Father, says, this is my son, listen to him. Wonderful to hear the audible voice of God on this mountaintop. And yet terrifying because essentially what the Father says is, hey, Peter, shut up. (laughs) The only appropriate response to the divine presence of Jesus is to listen and be ready to obey. And so when you find yourself on the mountaintop, when you find yourself having said yes to Jesus, call wherever it may lead you, be prepared first to listen. In verse 9, as they went back down the mountain, He told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. And so Peter, James, and John have this incredible experience, this amazing transfiguration of Jesus right before their eyes. Peter makes a misstep by trying to figure out what to do next instead of waiting and listening. And the father audibly says, hey, guys, this is my son. Listen to him. And in these verses, we read what Jesus had to say and what Peter, James, and John needed to listen to. And it's essentially twofold. He essentially told them two things that they needed to hear and take to heart and be obedient in response to. The first is Jesus saying, don't tell anyone what you've seen which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Peter, James, and John have experienced this wonderful moment with Jesus. They've seen him in a way no one else has seen him, and you would think that the most appropriate response would be for them to get down the mountain as quick as possible and tell everybody about what they had seen so that more would come to believe in who Jesus really was. That makes sense, right? And yet... Jesus tells them not to speak a word of it. So what is wonderful must be kept secret for a time. And then Jesus says, I, the son of man, am going to rise from the dead. The 
the understanding, the implication is, I am going to die. And you talk about terrifying. Peter, James, and John come off the mountain. God tells them to listen to his son who has shown his glory to them. And his words to them are both wonderful and terrifying. What you've seen, don't speak a word of it until I rise again. Friends, when we find ourselves uh, coming down off the mountain, we've got to be listening for the voice of God and understanding that his instruction isn't always going to make sense. It's not always going to be clear, but it's not our job to understand. It's our job to obey. And in order to do that, we have to be listening closely. And so this question is meaningful, it is important, it is profound. Is Jesus really divine? Is Jesus really God? I want to pause for just a moment and, and think from a different perspective in this account. Imagine Moses and Elijah, who have been uh, out of this world for quite some time. They're heroes of the faith. They've served faithfully and they've been called to glory long before this encounter. And yet here God the Father calls them out of retirement, so to speak, to show up on the mountaintop, to have a conversation with Jesus that's not going to be cataloged. Their words are not presented to us in Scripture. They don't fulfill any purpose in this moment other than having a conversation with Jesus that's observed by Peter, James, and John. And then they disappear. Well, what's that all about? In part, it's a picture, it's an illustration, both for Peter, James, and John and for us, that Jesus is unmatched. That even the heroes of the faith, even those who have gone before and, and who have had stories told about what God has done through them, they disappear and Jesus is elevated. This is my son. Listen to him. Part of Peter's issue is that he wanted to set up three shelters as if these three individuals were on equal footing, and that wasn't the case. No one comes before Jesus. No one is greater than Jesus. Is Jesus really God? You bet he is. And that's why when he calls, we can in confidence say, yes, I will go. Because there's no call like the call of Jesus. That's why when we're being led by hand up the mountain, whether or not we know what's there or not, whether or not we're excited to go on this trip or not, when we're invited to follow Jesus, we can trust him and say yes, knowing full well that it's going to be both wonderful and terrifying because there is no one like Jesus. And so whatever it is that he may be calling you to today, I want to invite and encourage you to say yes. And that mountaintop that he may be inviting you to go up onto with him may be leaving your job so that you can go to a new place where he is calling you. It may be leaving your home to go to a new place where he's calling you. 
It may be leaving a a social group. It may be leaving relationships for some reason because he's calling you into something new. It may be leaving habits that have left you and others hurting. It may be leaving what is comfortable and familiar, what you enjoy, so that he can go where he's calling you to go. Say yes. But you'll never say yes until you answer that question, who do you say I am? I want to leave with these words of encouragement from the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Be encouraged. Be blessed by these words spoken long ago, but equally powerful and applicable for us today. Beginning in verse 2 of 2 Peter chapter 1. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. And these are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done. We thank you for Jesus who made a way as a divine intervention to the problem of our sin as a divine intervention to the problem of our separation from you. And because of him, and in him and through him, we can know you. We can have both the hope of eternity, but renewed purpose as well for this life and for the remaining days we have on this earth. God, help us to be faithful. God, give us the courage to say yes to wherever it is that you're calling us to go. Give us the peace after we've said yes so that we don't lose heart, so that we don't lose faith, so that we don't lose sight of the fact that you're with us, that you're going before us, and that you'll provide us with everything we need to live the life that you've called us to. For my friends here today, God, I pray that you'd move by your spirit in a mighty way, that they would choose to say, yes, I believe Jesus is who he and others have said he is. He is the Messiah. He is God. And that our lives each day would not just be informed by that, but would be formed by that shaped and changed for your glory and our good. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we pray all of this in the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.